Welcome, everyone. Let me remind you of some things that are coming up before we continue in our our series for the second week. The hayride that we had scheduled for yesterday did not happen because the place at which we were having it, Farmer Charlie's, just about 10 minutes south of us here off 75, uh, closed because of the weather. So we've postponed it to this coming Saturday at Farmer Charlie's at 4.30. So that gives you today to let us know you want to go. And so you can do that at the Resource Center before you leave. And they'll take your name and contact information and we'll get some more wristbands from folks at Farmer Charlie's because that's the way they do it. You have a wristband and then you've got unlimited access to all the stuff they have. It's $8 per person, $32 maximum per family. So you'll pay for no more than four, and three and under are free. So if you paid for three and under, which I'm told some people did, then you're entitled to a refund, and you can go let the folks know at the Resource Center about that. So that's the hayride. We have our newcomer's brunch coming up on November 2nd, Saturday, November 2nd. So that's just a week from this Saturday. And it is for newcomers, and a newcomer is defined as somebody who hasn't been to one of our brunches. So if you haven't been, we would love to have you at our house. The brunch takes place at our place Saturday, November 2nd, 10 a.m. till around noon. There's no program. I don't, I'm not teaching a lesson or any of that. It's just a brunch and a chance for us to get to know you and, and you us. So we would love to have you, have you all come. But we need to know if you're coming so we can prepare So let the folks at the Information Center know, and they will in turn give you uh, an invitation that has our address on it, our phone number, it has the date and time on it as as well. So stop by there today and let them know if you would. That's newcomers, November the 2nd. The night before that, and that very day, we have two fundraisers going on, that Friday and Saturday, November 1st and November 2nd. And those have been in the program for a while. It's very unusual that we have fundraisers really for anything, and certainly that we would have two at the same time. But they are two for very uh, worthy worthy causes related to folks in our church. Pastor Matt and Erica are pursuing uh, adoption, and that is a very, very expensive proposition. So we've had a few fundraisers to try to help them out with that. And there's a dinner on Friday night, November 1st, uh, to help them with that. And you can pay for that uh, or make a donation to that at the Resource Center but the information about it is in the uh, program. And then the following day, Saturday, November 2nd, same day as we're having our brunch in the morning, uh, the Baldwin Foundation, the Ali Jolie Baldwin Foundation for Cancer Research uh, and Education uh, will have a, a benefit fundraiser uh, at Kirby Church that day. And it's all day. It starts at 9, and it involves powerlifting and all that sort of stuff. Uh, if you don't care about that or you don't want to go to that, but you can still buy a ticket. The tickets are $10. You can just make a $10 donation or give the ticket to somebody else uh, or whatever you want to do. But uh, that's a way that uh, funds will be raised for the Foundation for Cancer Research. A sizable donation out of the proceeds of that day are going to go to the Baldwin Foundation. Now, some of you may not know uh, Brad and Tamara, but they uh, lost uh, their little one. The Lord called their little one to himself. Allie, and uh, she c- contracted cancer and, uh, and died, and as a result of that experience, they are trying to help families through this, this foundation. So it's a very worthy cause, uh, and as is the adoption fund for the Owens. So please make note of both of those. 
And then building issues. I mentioned in our first hour that we thought they were going to start this week. Our general contractor had a meeting with subcontractors this past week, and they determined they're going to start not this week, but the week after. So here, within the next 10 days or so, you're going to see activity going on. And then we're just going to have to navigate around that. And I don't know what that means from week to week. I'm going to have to get instructions from our contractor to tell us where we can park and all that sort of stuff. So it'll probably be a bit of a hassle for a while, as if what we have now isn't enough of a hassle to uh, park out on the street. We'll probably have to park further down the, down the street uh, because there'll be machinery and some of the parking will be dug up and, and all of that. So just be aware that that's going to be happening in the next several days, but all for a very good cause, getting this room expanded and allowing us to advance the Lord's work here. All right. From self-help to God's help, this is session number two of of nine. Everybody should have a, a set of notes. And if you'll look at session number two, and I just remind you as to what we looked at last week, and that is that we tend to deal with our problems or view our problems in isolation. We see that we have a particular difficult circumstance, we have a particular struggle that we have going on, but we see it in isolation from the rest of what's going on in our lives, the rest of what is going on in our thought patterns, and from a biblical standpoint, in our hearts. That's the term the Bible uses. And we we fail to see the the big picture as to how this particular struggle and how I'm dealing with it and reacting to it are related to how I process what's happening in my life, how I view myself, how I view my circumstances, and how I view God. I said last week that that is consistent with the way most of us go through life, looking at life in compartments. And rather than seeing an overall big-picture objective for all of the things that God has called me to do, I pursue them all kind of separately, hermetically sealed in little boxes from one another. So I have a work compartment, and I have a leisure compartment, and I've got a finance compartment, and I've got a family compartment, and you could just go on and on and label the boxes that comprise your life. And then one of those boxes is my spiritual church compartment. And yet, from God's standpoint, your relationship with Him colors everything else, all of those other boxes. And that's the way it's to be seen from that big picture perspective. And so last week, we tried to show that big picture perspective that's given a number of times in Scripture. And it's embodied in this uh, chart that you have on the opposite page of Session 2. It's also on the opposite page of Session 1 and Session 3 and Session 8. We'll be looking at that same chart throughout our time together. But if you turn to session two, you see on the, on the opposite page, you have that chart. And it shows four major, four major components to the big picture of our, our circumstances. And at the very top, uh, there is heat. And, uh, and then the heat is the, the circumstance, the situation that I find myself in. And as we're going to be reminded, that could be the searing heat of adversity. It could actually be the rain of of blessing as well, but it's the situation I'm in, whether a difficult situation or a blessed situation. But both of them provide opportunities for me to react. And when I react, and how I react is going to determine what kind of fruit comes out of that. 
And so you see at the top, it's, you know, the heat. But then as you go to the right and in the, in the middle, you've got a tree that's growing there that's like a cactus, <laughs> right, on the right. And that's bad fruit that comes out of my reactions to what's going on in my life. But that bad fruit comes out of a a bad root. And at the root of that cactus, you see a heart shape with a negative. So these are negative, wrong, unhealthy, unbiblical responses to the heat of life that in turn then develop the bad fruit. So how is the, how is the bad fruit transformed into, into good fruit? Which is what the third major component of the big perspective of life is, and that is the cross down at the bottom of your, your chart. And it is, it is the cross and it's the, the work of the Redeemer, Jesus, that transforms the heart. And so instead of just getting at the, at the superficial level of the externals and the fruit, you deal with the root which in turn will produce different fruit. And that's why you see then as you go to the left side, you have another tree. Instead of a cactus and a barren tree, you now have a fruitful tree. So it is, it is bearing real fruit, good fruit, because at its root you see a heart that has a plus there, a positive, appropriate, healthy, biblical reaction to what's happening because of a transformed heart due to the transformer, the Lord, Jesus, the Redeemer, doing that work. And so you have, you have the heat, which produces thorns very often, if we've got the negative reaction. You've got the cross, and then you've got fruit on the, on the left side. That's the big picture of life from God's perspective in Scripture. And we saw that from several passages, uh, three passages in particular last week, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 12, and Jeremiah chapter 17. And there are numerous uh, passages where you see that same kind of big picture perspective in all four of those major components. So now what we want to do today and in the weeks that follow is take each of those four and break them down. The four being the heat and the thorns and the cross and the fruit. Okay, And we want to spend two sessions each on those. So we have today and seven more sessions. So two sessions on the heat of life, the situations that we find ourselves in, and then two on the thorns, the kind of ill fruit, bad fruit that grows out of a a bad root uh, and a a false way of processing what's going on in my life, how the cross transforms that, and then two lessons on the good fruit that comes from that transformed heart. So today, the the heat, the scorching heat of adversity, or maybe it's the rain of blessing. And how you react, and you will react, you're always reacting, I'm always reacting to what's going on in my life. We're never passive, we're always active in our hearts and in our minds, processing what's going on. And how you process what's going on in your life is going to depend on a couple of things. One... It's going to depend on whether the situation was a jolt that kind of came out of the blue or something that you've had time to prepare for. We've all had things that just were curveballs that came, seemingly came out of nowhere, right? And when you're jolted like that, 
uh, it has an impact on, on all of us, and it's disorienting. So the timing of the situation affects us. But the other thing that affects us is our personalities as well. I mean, we're all different. We're all wired differently. Um, some of us react very emotionally <laughs> to whatever stimulus is happening <laughs> out there. And uh, I'm grinning when I say that because uh, I, I could say some of you do that because the whole emotion thing, I'm, I'm close, I'm very close to a Vulcan on the, uh, <laughs> kind of on the emotion scale, okay? I mean, when I'm preaching God's Word, I get emotional sometimes, fairly often. Uh, but things that happen in life and stuff like that, that's just not the way I roll. It's not because I'm better. I don't mean that. That's just not the way I think. Part of it is, it's just different personality. The other thing is, I spent 20 years doing computer work. So you're programming a machine, you know. And machines just do what you tell them to do, you know, and it just comes out the way it's supposed to come out. If it doesn't come out the way it's supposed to come out, it's because you're an idiot because you put the wrong stuff in. And so, you know, we just deal with it. So your work, not only your personality, but your training. You train yourself to think in particular ways. So we all re are reacting all the time to the things that are going on in our lives, but we react differently depending on the timing of what happened, depending on our personal bents, depending on the kind of training and experiences that we've had, but we are all reacting. And so take a situation like a guy who is called into his boss's office and he's thrilled that his boss has finally called him into his office to give him a raise. And he's certain that his boss is going to give him a raise because he has been working with a design team for several months on a new product that is going to make the company a bunch of money. And the company has been excited about it. The team has been excited about it. This uh, young man, 25, gets a chance to be on this design team, youngest guy on the design team. This is going to be a ticket for him for a raise. There are even talks of bonuses for the whole, for the whole group. And uh, it's going to kickstart his, his career. So the boss has called him in, and when he goes into the boss's office, the boss looks a little more sullen than normal. That's unusual. And then the boss says, uh, we found out that uh, another company has just released the product you all have been working on. They beat us to it. And the company is going to go under because we put all our eggs in this basket. And as a result, we have to let you go. Well, there's a jolt for you. And as he hears those words, his, his life, from his perspective, my life is over. Uh, all of his dreams are shattered, and just like that. And you can think about all kinds of situations where there's that jolt, that trauma of something happening that was completely unexpected that now turns your world upside down. And how we react, and that's going to depend on the way we process things, our experience, all of that. And much of it's going to depend on how we prepare ahead of time for the things that inevitably will happen to all of us. So what we're doing right now is a good, a very good exercise for every one of us because there is going to be some news. For many of us, there has been news. And there may be other news that is going to be unexpected and un, unwanted in our lives. So what happens? 
Well, if we're not prepared well for things that happen like that in life, the heat, particularly the adversity of, of life, if we're not prepared for that, then we subtly and slowly begin to change our beliefs because of what has happened. And I have seen this. Scripture warns about it, as we are going to see. But you see, nobody wakes up one morning and says, I'm going to change what I believe about God. Something or some things happen. And then they process those things in a particular way. And usually not right away, but over time, it begins to erode their faith in God. It begins to change the way they look at life and their zest for life. And whether or not there's really anybody controlling what's going on. I mean, if you can't control whatever happened to me, then are you really controlling the world? And so nobody wakes up and, and says that. And so you don't even realize that that transformation is taking place. That your feelings are morphing into your beliefs. And they're subtly changing where you stood how you see God, how you see yourself, how you see his world. And that's happening, as I say, subtly. Now, that ought to scare you a little bit. I'm trying to scare you, okay? Because it's scary that that can happen slowly. But Scripture speaks to that. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, the writer of Hebrews says, See to it, brothers that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that becomes hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, I want you to notice what that verse says. It says, See to it, brothers, that none of you. Brothers, in fact, in the New NIV, it says brothers and sisters, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Do you know what it's saying there? Look out for each other. And what the assumption is in that verse is, is that change for us is a community project, brothers and sisters. And the worst thing you can do is to isolate yourself from your brothers and sisters when you're going through the heat of life. But the interesting thing is that's the very thing we want to do. That's the very thing many of us do, right? So I'm going to isolate myself, and now I'm trying to handle this, and it's all subtly going on, and things are being eroded that you can't see, and you need other people who love you who can see what's happening and can speak into your life on that. So it's happening. Nobody wakes up saying, I'm going to change my beliefs, but our emotions begin to erode what it is we think about God and ourselves and others and about life. And these major changes in what we believe often aren't well thought out. We haven't gone through a careful doctrinal theological evaluation. We just have these unresolved feelings that become the lens through which we're seeing life. And I've counseled lots of people who have a set of lenses on through which they see life, and those lenses were acquired very often through some experience or set of experiences. 
and they're carrying around that baggage, and rather than seeing life through the accurate lens of the Word of God, they're seeing it through the lens of the thing that happened. And so that person ends up withdrawing, isolating. They become discouraged, feel alone, wonder why these things have happened to to him or her, question where God was and why he would allow it, sometimes question the value of their their faith, but as I said, they're unaware that all of this is, is going on. So what does the Bible say about stuff like that? How does the Bible comfort someone in the midst of the heat of life and loss and curveballs and trauma and difficulty? Well, one of the ways that the Bible comforts us is in passages that don't even use the word comfort. But it's in passages that recognize the very difficulty that you're engaged in. Where God says, I want you to know I get it that I understand that this is the way life is in a fallen world. And that I am not removed from this. I am not absent from this. I know about it. It's the world that I made. It's the world I am remaking. And I know it better than you do. And so I deal with it. I, God, deal with it in Scripture in very accurate, clear, honest ways. And one of those ways is in Psalm 88. And Psalm 88 is in your notes. We're going to read through Psalm 88. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you, May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry out to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I've been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. 
You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Period. Now, is that a realistic view of... <laughs> I mean, it's all there, isn't it? You see, God doesn't, God doesn't do the I want you healthy and wealthy nonsense. God gives a realistic picture of life in a fallen world. Which is one of the ways that God's word comforts us. By confronting the very darkness that can often engulf life. Not stepping around it. Not lying about it. Not sanitizing it. That's just straight up, isn't it? Now here's the thing. In those notes that we have for you, we have that psalm listed. The entirety of the psalm ends with the darkness is my closest friend. But what you don't see there is what you would see if you looked at it in your Bible, which is that this is a song, a song that would be sung, and a song that would be, that would be sung by, by who? Well, it's, it would be a song of the sons of Korah, the Bible says. If you look at it in your Bible, it'll say that, a song of the sons of Korah. <laughs> well, who are they? They're the doorkeepers to the tabernacle. And they would lead in procession as God's people would go in. And one of the songs they would sing is that. Now, if you were here in our first hour, I was telling you, you know, I'm burdened about the way American evangelical Christianity lies to people about life. I mean, we're giving people a false view of life when we don't tell the truth about its fallenness, about its difficulty, about the fact that God's people throughout history have had great difficulty. God has always sustained them. But we are lying when we tell people it's all going to be good because you have a relationship with Jesus. It may be worse because you have a relationship with Jesus. Because people don't like Jesus. And therefore they don't like Jesus' followers, as we saw in the first hour. So we have to be, it's all happy talk and happy happy and jump around and get happy. And we're the happy, happy radiant fellowship of, you know, and that's what it's all about. And it lies to people. Can you imagine us coming in a procession in here and singing that, setting that to music? You know, in, in our day, I mean, dude, we've got to pep this up somehow. I mean, somehow we've got to get, I mean, how can we? Darkness is my only friend. <laughs> I mean, come on, let's jazz this thing up a little bit. And, you know, the point I'm making is God doesn't jazz it up. He tells you the way it is. But you ought to draw, and I ought to draw comfort out of God telling us the way it is. Because what it means is God knows the way it is. God understands the way it is. So, in verses 3 through 5 of that passage, see if you can identify with the writer. You're in deep inner despair. You feel forsaken by God, verses 6 and 7. In verse 8, you've lost your friends. You feel trapped and helpless. 
In verses 9 through 12, you feel as if you're dying, crying out for help, but no one comes. In verses 13 and 14, you feel as though God has turned his back on you. Like bad things always happen and nothing ever changes in verses 15 to 17. And then the last verse, you feel like you wake up every morning in a very dark world. But it's teaching us in that, that God understands the full range of human experience. From joy to crushing sorrow. That the promises of the Redeemer come to people who live in a world where this kind of stuff happens. A psalm like that teaches us about God's honesty about these experiences and it invites me to be honest about the things I face. Biblical Christianity is never blind in its reaction to life. And as a result, going to God with my despair and my doubt and my fear is an act of faith. Because I believe, that's what faith is, I believe that this God understands and cares. So going to Him with that is an act of belief, it's an act of faith. And Psalms like this show us yet again the Bible is not about this idyllic world with noble people who in the end always make the right choice. Bible's full of all kinds of characters like you and me who often make the wrong choice and suffer the, the consequences. And so our Christianity in our churches is often dishonest in the way we present what the Christian life is about and we teach without saying it. We teach each other to be dishonest with each other. Everything's good. I've got it together. I'm just a middle-class Christian who needs a little tweaking every now and then. That's what we think in our churches. That's what we act like. So we have community groups that meet in homes to help people foster a sense of community where you can carry out one of the principles that this church was started on. That we want CBC to be a place where it's safe some of you know what I'm going to say, where it's safe to be a sinner. It's safe to be a sinner, and it's safe to suffer as a sinner. And so instead of acting like you got it together, stop lying, because already, I already know you, because I read a book about you and me. So it's not only dishonest from the pulpit, that dishonesty from the pulpit and, you know, happy, happy and all of that, it's not only dishonest from the pulpit, it's dishonest in the pew then. And we act like we've got it together. And so God is saying, by passages like Psalm number 88, I understand. And that should be a great source of comfort then. I understand what life is like. I know what life is like. And now I want you to see the big picture of how I am intervening in life like that in order to change it. Now another passage that shows the realism with which Scripture deals with life in a fallen world is James chapter 1. I have that just cited for you in your notes. Didn't have enough room to print it out, but I think we have it on the screen. Do we have that? Look at us. Okay. So there's James chapter 1. And here's James chapter 1 starting out. And he is concerned that the people to whom he is writing understand the very thing we're talking about. 
that life is not all full of mountaintop experiences, but rather consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Leave it there. Take it back if you can. Thanks. We'll go on, but I just want us to understand what's being said here. Many of you have heard me say that just verse 2 has four things in it about the heat of life. Four things just in that one short verse. And one is that uh, trials are unwanted. That's why they're called trials. They're trying. Okay? They're often, most often, difficult. They can be blessing as well, as we'll see. But most often, in a fallen world, they're, they're difficult circumstances. They're unwanted. But then the other thing that, that that verse tells you is that they're unavoidable. Because it says, Whenever. Not if you fall, when. Because this is going to happen in a fallen world. That trials are going to come upon you. So they're, they're unwanted, they're trials. But they're unavoidable, they happen to everybody. It's when, not if. And then it is, uh, they are, um, they're unexpected. They just happen. It says, whenever you face trials... And when it says you face, some translations say whenever you fall into trials. And the word that's translated face or fall into is the same word that's used in the parable that Jesus gave of the uh, Good Samaritan. And he says there was a traveler going along who, quote, fell among thieves. Same word here. He's going along and he gets tripped up. So these things are unexpected. They just come at you. They can come at you this afternoon. They can come at you any time, right? And then the fourth thing is they're unlimited in their variety because they are of many kinds. Health, finances, relationships. It could be any number of things, an unlimited, literally an unlimited list of things. So this is a realistic view of life. But here's how you can have a perspective on it that is radically different if you appropriate what you know. Verse 3, what do you know? Well, here's what I know. The testing of your faith produces something. So the testing of your faith, remember what faith is. The word faith in the New Testament is the same word as belief. You could say the testing of what I believe. So when we went through the book of James a couple of years ago, I kept pounding that. That trials test what you really believe. You see, it's one thing for us to sit here right now and say, I believe this list of things about God, about myself, about life. It's another thing for you to get a, a diagnosis. And now what do I really believe? That's what's being tested. And the testing of what you really believe produces something good. What does it produce? Verse 3, perseverance. That is, that word literally means to bear up under. So it produces the ability to bear up under now the strain of difficulty. 
So if you pass this test, now you have been strengthened in your ability to bear up under living in a fallen world because trials aren't going to come once in life, right? But the next time the trial comes, I am stronger for the fight if I pass the test. So this is a a test of what you believe, and it will produce the ability to bear up under. And as it finishes its work now, it results in you being mature and complete. Not lacking anything. Now, that means if you have some theology behind those verses, and God's behind any of that, then God is letting that stuff happen in your life not to do something to you, but to do something for you. And that's a radically different perspective. His end game is for you to be mature, not lacking anything. Now, I'm in the heat. I'm in the midst of the thing. You're in whatever heat you've got going on right now. You're in the midst of it. What's being tested is what you really believe God intends this good end, maturity, to come out of it. And yet, if you're honest, you're saying, I'm struggling with bearing up under it. I feel like I'm failing the test. I I am doubting God. So what do I do? The next passage says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. So what's wisdom? Wisdom. Wisdom in Scripture is the ability to apply what you know. Lord, I know this intellectually. I need the ability to appropriate it to the situation I'm in right now. And I'm failing, Lord. But even saying that's an act of faith. (laughs) Of honestly going to the God who cares and the God who wrote Psalm 88 and the God who wrote James 1. And saying, Lord, grant me the wisdom, the ability now to appropriate, to apply to my circumstance what I know to be true. That you're not doing something to me, you're doing something for me. So if any of you lacks the ability to do that, ask God. And he generously gives to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And then the passage goes on to talk about, look, when you... When you ask, you believe. And this whole thing that's being tested here is faith, what you believe, and not doubt. And then it goes on to talk about different kinds of circumstances, not just, not just difficult. If you go to the next one, Pete, and the next one. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, and the rich take pride in their humiliation. Now notice what, it, what it's saying there is there's two kinds of circumstances that are both testing what you believe. Most of the time it's adverse, trials, difficulty. Sometimes it's blessing. Blessing can test what you believe. Do you remember when God prepared in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God prepared his people to go into the promised land? And he gave them instructions about what kind of mindset they should have before they go into this land flowing with milk and honey and all the stuff that they're going to have. Now that they've endured the wandering in the wilderness you know, for the, the 40 years and you're going, to, you're going to 
take the, uh, you're going to take the land. God's preparing them for this. And as he does, he's telling them, here's why I'm warning you about this. Because when you go in, you may forget God. In the midst of all this blessing, you may say to yourself, we did this. So blessing can be and is a testing of what you believe as well. Now, in all of this, these trials, usually adverse, sometimes blessing, but in either case, they are external situations that come at us. That's important. They're external situations that come at us. And beginning in verse 13, if you'll go down to verse 13, there. Thank you. External circumstances that come at us, usually adverse, sometimes a blessing. What's being tested is what I believe. God has an end game to produce maturity in this if we pass the test. And then verse 13 says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. Now, here's the thing you've got to get about that. The word that's translated trial way back up in verse 2. My brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds is the same word as tempted in verse 13. You could actually translate that, when tried, no one should say, God is trying me for the purpose of making me sin. And that's why the translators use the word tempt here. Because it's the same external circumstance which, depending on how you react to it, Believing in faith or doubting, not in faith, will either become a trial that leads you to maturity or a temptation that leads you to sin. And when you sin, what James is saying very clearly is that's not God's intention in the trial. God's intention is always this good thing, this good end game. So you might reason and say, well, since God's in control of all the circumstances and I can't handle this and I'm falling apart in this, God's the one who tempted me and led me to this. And what James is saying is, God put that in your pathway to make you better. And the difference between whether it's a trial that leads to maturity or a temptation that leads to sin is the heart you bring to it. And that's why it goes on to say, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And it goes on to conclude. After desire is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So that's the end game that Satan desires. Use the same external circumstance to tempt you toward evil and its end game. And God says, I've allowed this circumstance for this good end game, your maturity. And then he gives this promise in verses 16 through 18. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. You see, when you're tempted to say, God, you let this thing happen in my life, you're not good to me. Don't be deceived. What comes from above are good and perfect gifts. Because they come from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. 
And you want to know that he has your best interest at heart? Here's the final verse in that passage. He chose to give us birth. He chose to make us his children through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So God's got a good end for the circumstances he allows in our lives. But that good end will only be achieved if we bring a good heart to it. And if we don't bring a good heart to it, now we've got the cactus instead of the good fruit that the cross and the Redeemer produce. It's part one of the heat of life, the situations of life, the realism of Scripture about the situations of life. We've got to quit because the nursery people get violent. So we'll have to quit. But you know, some of you all are carrying around a bunch of baggage and you've been doing it for a long time. When we get to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, I hope you're here because we're going to have a good time together. It's a verse that says, Cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety on him. We're going to look at that together. It's going to be a while before we get there. But in the meantime, God wants you to stop carrying that baggage around. And this, from self-help to God's help, is the first step for some of you to unload the baggage. And then having unloaded the baggage, approaching it now with a changed perspective, looking at yourself, looking at God, looking at His good intentions through a different set of lenses, not the lenses of your emotion that have suddenly been eroding over a long period of time. Now looking at them accurately through the lens of Scripture, God's design for you to be in this class is that you change the way you react to that and that good fruit grow out of it. All right, we'll pursue that next week. Let's ask the Lord to help us this week. Father, thank you for the realism, the truth, the honesty of your word. It could be nothing other because it is your word and you are absolutely truthful. And so God, thank you that you have included Psalm 88 and James chapter 1 and all the narratives, the stories about your interactions with your people and their difficulty in life and, and their sin and the fallenness and the things that they have been victimized by and all of them are things that we can relate to as your people in this room. So thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for the comfort that we can draw from just knowing that you get it, you see it, you know all about it, and you're at work in it. Help us to remember that now this week, this afternoon even, <laughs> in the heat of life. And bring us back safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.